Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God who suffers, help us to rest into your compassion and presence. In today's good and bad, in today's life and death, in today's healing and suffering. Amen. And please be seated. Throughout the season of Lent, the church intentionally abides in a garden full of hope and possibility, wondering what might grow up here and what good can be done now. With these important Easter questions in mind, we find ourselves in a new sermon series that's exploring the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts to try and better understand Jesus' good gospel. Through the lens of these various books, we hope to more fully appreciate Jesus' life into which he invites every person. Uh, Last week, we considered the Gospel of Matthew with his focus on this epic King Jesus and his revolutionary kingdom into which he's inviting every person. This morning, we'll consider the Gospel of Mark. We long as human beings for clarity, don't we? Like, when will COVID be over? We really want to know. When will things return to a semblance of normalcy? We really want to know. When will kids be able to be vaccinated? When will we be able to safely gather together in person at our beloved EcoTrust? We really want to know. But of course, we don't know. And so many of us try and guess. It seems to me like my family has become fluent in this kind of conversation. It it goes something like this, and maybe you'll find it familiar in the conversations that you've been having. Someone asks, when will life get back to normal? And then we, based on who we've recently talked to and what we've recently read and how all of that makes us subjectively feel, we then each provide our reasons for our many guesses to a question that we actually cannot answer. (laughs) But there's something cathartic about guessing and trying to know with clarity what is going to happen. This proclivity to know what is going to happen along with the disorientation that we feel when what we think is going to happen does not happen. This all very much gets at what takes place in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels. In fact, most biblical scholars agree that Matthew and Luke borrow much of their material from Mark. Mark is also the shortest of all the Gospels, only 16 chapters in length. Out of these 16 chapters, Mark begins to focus on Jesus' passion, his forthcoming suffering and death, all the way back in chapter 8, 
which means that nine chapters, over half of Mark's gospel, are about Jesus' suffering. It's for this reason that some scholars refer to the Jesus of Mark's gospel as the suffering servant, which is what he is. And this brings us very quickly to the heart of Mark's gospel, Jesus as a suffering servant. But you see, it's more than simply Jesus is a Messiah who suffers. The Gospel of Mark is more so about Jesus' followers trying to get their heads around their Messiah as one who suffers. You see, beginning in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is intentionally set up as a subversive Caesar. I talked about this in more detail a few weeks ago in a sermon titled, Good News, Sons of God and Saviors. But put simply, Mark intentionally casts Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who promises to bring about peace, which intentionally rivals Caesar Augustus, the quote-unquote Son of God, who is said to bring about peace through victory, in other words, violence, and violence on a cross in particular. With this in mind, and reading along with Mark, not knowing how the story is going to end, we, along with Jesus' disciples, are invited into a journey that not only subverts our expectations of the divine, but we're invited into a journey that challenges how we exist in the world, when what we think will happen, or when we think what should happen, does not actually happen. Or, to put it in very Gospel of Mark language, our disorientation that comes from our lack of clarity is elevated in Mark for us to consider and to ponder as it relates to us following after Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we're set up to believe that Jesus is going to be the new Caesar, which means, by way of expectation, that he's going to bring about peace through victory, probably on a cross. And by saying victory on a cross, to be clear, I mean all of Jesus' enemies. This is what Jesus' followers and the readers of Mark would have expected, that Jesus, the Messiah, would become a king, inaugurating a kingdom by crushing all of his enemies. And so in Mark chapter 1, we read the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Expectations set. In chapters 1 to 7, Jesus heals, he speaks with power, he calls his disciples. And by chapter 8, it feels as though almost everyone is following after Jesus. However, if we're reading carefully, we'll also notice a couple refrains in Mark's gospel that go something like this. Do you not understand? And they did not understand. For example, from Mark chapter 4, And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? And from Mark chapter 6, For they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. And from Mark chapter 7, Jesus said to them, Do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile. This language is really important in Mark's gospel. It's as though all along the way that that what the disciples expect of Jesus, what they think he is going to do, 
doesn't actually end up happening. Or what he does do ends up being misunderstood. And so again and again and again, Jesus asks, do you not understand? Do you still not see? Following this theme of not understanding, chapter 8 of Mark begins to use the language of sight and blindness. Uh, Here's what I mean. At the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Immediately after feeding the 4,000, the Pharisees ask Jesus, hey, show us a sign. (laughs) And this is intentionally ridiculous in Mark because Jesus just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Immediately after this miracle, Jesus is on a boat with his disciples when the disciples realize that they forgot to bring the leftover bread and they start to worry and fret about this terrible mistake that they've made, not bringing the leftover bread from the miracles on the side of the lake. Jesus, knowing that they were fretting and worrying, says to them, and this is very important, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see but fail to see? Now, immediately following these questions by Jesus, we read these strange words in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. This story of a double healing is odd. We don't find this story in Matthew. We don't find this story in Luke. We don't find this story in John. This story of this double healing is only found here in Mark. And not only is this story found just here in Mark, but there are aspects to this story that are unlike all other healing stories throughout all of the other Gospels. Like Jesus asking if his healing had been effective. Uh, Did it work? Did, Did my healing actually heal you? This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus' attempt to heal somebody doesn't fully heal that person on the first try. And it results in Jesus laying his hands on the blind man a second time. This is intentionally odd. It's intentionally weird. These features distinguish this incident of healing from all other healing incidents. And it is intentional to suggest that this man's sight was restored only gradually and with difficulty. Why? What kind of blindness could be so difficult for Jesus, the Son of God, to heal? Well, right after this strange story, we read these words. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. 
This, you see, is a glorious Peter moment. (laughs) I mean, Peter has his bad moments, but this is not one of them. In fact, this might be Peter's best moment. In these verses, Peter gets it right. He succinctly and accurately declares, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one by God. Jesus is the Savior. And with this identification comes a whole slew of expectations for Peter. The Messiah is going to rule. The Messiah is going to bless his people, not all people, but his people. And the Messiah is going to create peace like all other leaders and kings and warriors do by crushing all of the enemies to death. Now, listen to these final words before I try to bring all of these stories together. Immediately after Peter's best moment, we read this. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. What a difference a few verses can make. Peter goes from being the one to succinctly and accurately declare that Jesus is the Messiah to being the first and and maybe only person that Jesus refers to as Satan. This is a curious movement in the passage. What is going on here? Well, theologians lump these stories of Peter's confession and the double healing of the blind man together, and they note that this is a critical juncture in Mark's gospel in which Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. You see, in this eighth chapter, Jesus becomes more than a servant who heals and cares for others. In this chapter, Jesus intentionally becomes a suffering servant. There is a shift here. Right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, in chapter 8, verse 31, we read, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter, hearing these words that conflict with the expectations for the Messiah that he just confessed, this very Peter rebukes Jesus, to which Jesus calls Peter Satan, saying, Your mind is not on divine things, but on human things. You see, Peter gets Jesus' identity. Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, the Savior. But Peter misunderstands how, how this Messiah will enact his kingdom in this world, which is through a Messiah who suffers. And this is why Jesus admonishes Peter. It's as though Peter sees, but he doesn't yet clearly see. Kind of like the double healing, the progression to fully seeing in the story that comes just before Peter's confession. About this, Greek scholar Daniel Wallace explains, As Jesus and his disciples continue their withdrawal, they come to Bethsaida, where Jesus performs a two-stage healing of a blind man, 
as a specific object lesson for his disciples to see and to ponder. The lesson was in the healing process. Jesus took two steps to heal the man. And this sets the stage for Peter's confession. As the disciples come to embrace Jesus as the Christ, first stage, but they want this Christ without the cross, second stage. And this makes me wonder what kind of developmental stage we find ourselves in this morning. Like, perhaps you're in stage one, the the Peter stage. It's the season of Christmas. The light is shining. You can see partially. Because in this stage, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah who will rule, who will bless his people, and who will create peace by crushing all of his enemies. In this stage, according to Mark, it's as though you see a foggy world that looks as though tree people are walking around. Or perhaps you're finding yourself more so in stage two. It's the season after the epiphany. The light is shining more fully, and this light isn't just for you and for your friends. You're coming to realize that this light is for everyone, maybe even your enemies. In this stage, you're beginning to understand, to more clearly see that suffering and death are part of a necessary process that contribute to what will become new life. Oh, and so you're squinting because the light is bright, as, as though you've just walked out of a dark tomb, but your eyes are adjusting to this new world and you're beginning to see, to truly see this new king and this new kingdom about which Jesus speaks. The developmental difference between these two stages is important. In stage one, we rebuke the divine when we're faced with suffering because we believe in a Messiah who is supposed to make everything better. We believe that Messiah will cause our lives to prosper. We believe that Messiah will cause our days to be filled with peace. We believe that Messiah will cause our deepest longings to be met. We believe that Messiah will cause our struggles to cease. But this, you see, is the result of a Messiah without a cross. And so, when we face trials and tribulations, it's natural, a kind of first response to say and to think things like, what is going on? I I didn't sign up for this. How can this happen to me? Life isn't supposed to go like this. Like Peter, we may even be tempted to pull the divine over to the side and and rebuke the divine for the suffering that we're experiencing in our lives. This developmental difference between these two stages is important. When Jesus likens Peter to Satan and tells him that his mind is on earthly things, he uses such strong language to make the point that a Messiah without suffering is dangerous. A Messiah without suffering cannot understand others' suffering. A Messiah without suffering cannot understand our suffering. A Messiah without suffering easily becomes a divinity who uses suffering to punish, rather than being a divinity who is capable of using this, whatever today's suffering may be, as part of a larger and more honest process that incorporates suffering into our becoming more whole and integrated and alive. When talking about Jesus' double healing, 
I wondered aloud, what kind of blindness could be so difficult for Jesus, the Son of God, to heal? And the answer, according to this good gospel of Mark, is faith in a Messiah who conquers through victory alone. For that, you see, is not victory. That is more so a fantasy. Because victory does not come from everything going our way. That is not how victory occurs in this world. Victory that has the potency of life comes through journeys and odysseys and lents and crosses and sweat and tears and blood that all contribute to our wholeness through the lessons that suffering teaches us. And through the growth and gratitude that suffering rouses from deep, deep inside of us. The good gospel of Mark encourages our seeing that suffering is not only Jesus' destiny, but ours. Not only his humiliation, but ours. Not only his cross, but ours daily, moment by moment. Like the man without sight, that, that he holds, uh, holds us by the hand, leads us out into the countryside puts saliva on our eyes and patiently asks us again and again, what do you see now? Oh, I see people trees walking around. I I see a Messiah who makes everything better. I see a divine who cannot participate in suffering. And so the Messiah takes our hand again and leads us into the countryside, puts his saliva on our eyes and patiently asks, what do you see now? Oh, I see people trees walking around, a a Messiah who saves me from all of my pain and all of my sorrow. And so he takes our hand again and leads us into the countryside and puts his saliva on our eyes and patiently asks us again, what do you see now? Oh, I see. I see a divine Messiah mocked, abused, abandoned. I see a cross. I see a tomb. I see days, multiple days in dark, dank death. And I'm also beginning to see that dark, dank death is not the end, but only part of the beginning in which new life is made possible by, because, and through my very experiences of suffering. From Mark 8, verse 25, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. May it be so, and let us pray. God who suffers, help us to rest into your compassion and presence in today's good and bad, in today's life and death, in today's healing and suffering. And in the midst of even this, whatever this is today, help us to trust in death that gives way to new life. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.